And a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Lesotho's new Prime Minister to be inaugurated today, conflict erupts between legislators in Malawi and DRC security forces arrest at least 40 activists. In economics, BHP Bulletin put far less debt than expected into its South 32 spin-off and in sports news, Ethiopian distance running pulls out of the next, mo- next month's London Marathon. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. ISIL militants have kidnapped as many as 20 medical workers in the Libyan coastal city of Sirte. The militant group kidnapped the medical staff of the Ibn Sina Hospital. According to the hospital official, the abductees are from the Philippines, Ukraine, India and Serbia. The medical workers were reportedly trying to leave the city because of security concerns. In January, Libyan Prime Minister Abdullah Altini warned that Libya may turn into a safe haven for ISIL terrorists who currently control swaths of land in Syria and Iraq. Activists from Burkina Faso, Senegal and an unspecified number of Congolese are still being held in police custody in the DRC, this following the release of an American diplomat who was also detained during a raid in the country. The raid followed a news conference in the capital, Kinshasa, to support Congo's Filimbi movement that aims to get more youths to participate in politics. Those arrested were suspected of being a threat to national security. Thousands of supporters of the various parties in Lesotho are waiting outside the national stadium in the capital, Maseru, for gates to open for the inauguration of the country's incoming prime minister. Pagadita Musisidi will be sworn in by the chief justice in the presence of King Litsia III and dignitaries from SADC member states. Israelis are voting in early parliament elections today following a campaign focused on economic issues rather than fears of a nuclear Iran or the Israeli-Arab conflict. 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has appealed to his hardline base at the last minute, saying a Palestinian state would not be established if he is elected to a fourth term. Netanyahu's main challenger is Isaac Herzog of the centre-left Zionist Union. Voters are electing a 120-member parliament. United Nations Health Agency sending emergency response experts to Vanuatu thus following a devastating cyclone that struck the Pacific Island nation over the weekend. Cyclone Pam with winds of more than 250 kilometers per hour and one meter storm ravaged Vanuatu on Friday and Saturday. Catherine Hasselberg reports. WHO says that while the damage caused by the cyclone PAM in Wanuatu is still being assessed, there are reports of deaths and serious injuries. Homes have been destroyed and there is limited or no access to health services, food and clean water in many places. The cyclone created debris that has blocked roads, knocked down bridges and created flooding. Electricity is out in many places and phones and internet systems are down or unreliable in the Pacific Island country. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's exactly 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Thousands of supporters of the various parties in Lesotho are waiting outside the national stadium in the capital, Maseru, for gates to open for the inauguration of the country's incoming prime minister, Pagadita Musisidi, will be sworn in by the chief justice in the presence of King Litsia III and dignitaries from SADC member states. Ntakwanangatane reports from Maseru. Government officials, royal palace staff and security agencies spent the day at the Sotsoto National Stadium putting final touches for the swearing-in ceremony. Security is already on standby. The outgoing Prime Minister, Tom Tabani, will hand over the flag and constitution to the incumbent, Bagadita Musisidi. Musisidi returns to the position after his stint that ended in 2012 when Tabani won those elections. Like Tabani, Musisidi failed to get an outright majority and had to form a coalition government with six other smaller parties. Government Secretary Muasludi Mpaka. Now immediately uh, after the election of the Speaker and the Deputy Speaker, yeah, in the National Assembly. What happens is uh, His Majesty is advised of uh, the name of uh, the person who commands the majority in Parliament, now formally by the Speaker. And uh, His Majesty uh, convenes the Council of State for the Council of State to pass that name and celebrate the inauguration of the Prime Minister because whether being it a coalition of parties or a coalition of parties with individuals who may have uh, stand as independent. That formation of uh, the coalition of people who command the majority in the National Assembly are eligible to form the government. And this is the stage where we are into now that uh, we will be having uh, that the CCD 
re-inaugurated back into uh, the office of the Prime Minister of the Kingdom of Lesotho. President Jacob Zuma is the only head of state attending the ceremony. Deputy President and SADC facilitator Cyril Ramaphosa and Minister of International Relations Maite Nkwana Mashabani are already in the country. It has been months of shuttling between Maseru and Pretoria for Ramaphosa as he negotiated an early election for security forces to stay out of politics. He says following last month's elections, today marks another big day for Lesotho. So it's going to be a fantastic day. It's a day of celebration and an ushering in of a new era and an era which we hope will be an era of peace and security and stability. So we are here to join all Basutu to celebrate this fantastic day for them. Thousands of Basutu nationals are expected to attend the ceremony. Screens will be mounted outside the 15,000-seater stadium for proceedings to be beamed live to those who can't make it into the stadium. And the king will host a garden party for VIP guests following the inauguration. Bagadi Tamusisidi returns as prime minister. I'm Nangatani in Maseru, Lesotho. Conflicts between legislators have emerged in Malawi barely 10 months after being elected into their respective offices through the first ever tripartite elections. Malawi has not had councillors in place since 2005, but now that councillors are in place, parliamentarians feel councillors are undermining them. George Mango reports from Blantyre. Well, the role of parliamentarians is to make laws and approve the national budget. Some still insist that councillors ought not to initiate development in various areas. This is being vindicated through the use of local development fund, LODF, which parliamentarians claim is supposed to be handled by them. This is common in both urban and rural areas. Recently, the Malawi Local Government Association challenged government to fulfill the 5% threshold for funding to district councils as outlined in the decentralization policy, which also meant that councillors should be empowered to tackle development in their various wards. One of the ward councillors, James Simuera, thinks civic education among local leaders, councillors and legislators could help deal with such conflicts. We are just trying to clarify to the people to know their rights. Others, they don't know how the government moves on, how they passes from council to ADC and then to the VDC. So we were highlighting the people to know how the government performs its services. To counter such controversies, Malawi's governance and democratic think tanks have launched a campaign aimed at raising awareness about the roles of ward councillors and legislators. These meetings are conducted in formal follow-ups with regards to how local development funds are used in various sectors. One such think tank group is the National Initiative for Civic Education, NICE. NICE, with funding from GIZ and the Malawi government, want to end such conflicts between the two parties and ensure that development is left in the hands of councillors and lawmaking specifically for legislators. Tuambidiri Maungulu works for NICE and is behind such awareness campaigns. We're promoting governance, so it's more or less like governance tracking. We wanted the people and the duty bearers to understand each other in terms of what kind of developments they've have been doing so far. We also wanted to explain and identify the process of community development because people are complaining that they don't know how the systems of development are operating. They are also not sure of what kind of laws and responsibilities 
responsibilities cancel hands and they're doing there are issues of lack of accountability and transparency which have emerged so we wanted um with duty bearers the mp the ta the councillors and the area executive committee members to explain as to how they are doing uh their work because there are government procedures or government standards of how things are supposed to be done when you want to do community development you have to ask the community on what kind of development projects they want but th- this is happening in vice versa because uh committee are complaining that development projects are just coming in their area without their involvement so we're actually tracking the whole process and on depending on how they're doing it and we're also empowering citizens to demand where information where there's information that isn't being hidden we're also asking citizens to demand from duty bearers accountability and transparency to this effect the malaya local government association in its report over the performance of councillors in the past seven months has alluded that most of them failed to work effectively due to, among other issues, lack of transport and offices. The board said councillors have not performed to the expectations of people because they cannot implement projects in their communities due to lack of funds in their councils. For Mwira, cooperation could be there if they two work together with local leaders and a detailed role is publicized. No one is behind the other. We move together. If one is missing some, something, she goes to the other person, then MP support the cancer, then the cancer support the MP. Then we know that we are communicating to the people thoroughly. Malawi has 193 members of parliament and 460 councillors elected during the previous elections, which saw President Peter Mutarika, younger brother to the former president Bingwa Mutarika, being declared winner by the Malawi Electoral Commission. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blante. Democratic Republic of Congo security forces have arrested a group of people accused of posing a threat to the country's stability. Among the people who were arrested in Kinshasa on Sunday were some foreigners, including a United States diplomat who was released later after the U.S. ambassador was called by Congolese authorities. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. Those people were arrested in Masina, out of the central town in the east of Kinshasa, the capital city of the Democratic Republic of Congo. What the Congolese government has it difficult to understand is the fact that these people were found in such a deep place, training young people on how to resist the security forces. According to the government spokesperson, such a training aims to overthrow a democratically elected regime and this is not acceptable. Lambert Mende. Three Senegalese citizens and one uh, uh, citizen from Burkina Faso were arrested among some other people by our police forces. They are accused of uh, threatening our security by trying to organize training for some young people in Kinshasa and uh, other, other towns of Congo to train people on how to resist uh, police forces or security personnel whenever things can uh, uh, push them to try to remove from power a democratically elected regime without waiting elections. These, even being done by a Congolese, is an offense to the law. And here we are having foreigners, three Senegalese, 
and the one Burkina Bay who are immixing themselves in political disputes in the Congo and trying to transform our discussions, our meeting in a kind of uh, violent relationship that the Congolese should fight among themselves as uh, Burkina Bay people fought one time. So this is, uh, we consider it as an aggression against our country. That is why they are now uh, at the disposal of the judicial police. The group of people the Congolese security forces arrested included also some journalists and the United States diplomats. The government said they were found among people who are believed to be in the process of bringing an attack against this country's security. The U.S. diplomat and the journalist were freed later according to the government spokesperson. Once more, Lambert explains. The diplomat was found at that place, very far from the town, where they were plotting against our security. And this is not a place for a diplomat. That is why he was arrested. But uh, he was uh, afraid at night because his ambassador was called and uh, they gave him back to the ambassador. We think that this is not the role, this is not the job for a diplomat to go and promote violence in a country where the, you were sent. The next step is judicial, my dear. We are under the state of rule of law. Those guys have been uh, accused by police to try to break the law. Whatever celebrity they are, they will meet our judges. And only the judges will decide. They might be very big persons in Burkina Faso. They might be heroes in Senegal. But this does not allow anybody to come and destroy peace in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That is not their country. This has happened while local elections are to be held here in October this year, and both the presidential and parliamentary elections are expected in November 2016. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. On the 17th and 18th of this month, join Channel Africa as we bring you live a broadcast on the second annual public-private dialogue forum on infrastructure projects held at the Hayat Hotel, Rosebank, South Africa. The summit will discuss the mechanisms, the successes and failures of local and international economic development initiatives in order to make recommendations of how to adapt them to benefit the broader African community. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's National Assembly will this afternoon debate a motion of no confidence brought by the Democratic Alliance against President Jacob Zuma. This is the second motion of no confidence brought against President Zuma recently. The first one was brought by Ahang SA a few weeks ago, but the party withdrew it at the 11th hour. Lula Mamakia reports. 
The DA's motion follows shortly after Ahang's motion, which was supposed to be debated early this month. The party's parliamentary leader, Andres Trouma, however, took the National Assembly by surprise when he withdrew his motion at the 11th hour. The DA subsequently filed their motion of no confidence. The party claims that under President Zuma's leadership, independent institutions supporting democracy have been politicized and weakened and that unemployment has escalated to unprecedented levels and the economy is at its weakest point. Parliamentary leader Musi Maimane elaborates. But that the ultimate thing is for the people at home to be able to decide for themselves where they have confidence in President Zuma. The only way they can do that is if the facts pertaining to his leadership get put forward in Parliament. The ANC has described the DA's motion as baseless and a waste of time. ANC caucus spokesperson Muloto Motapo says ANC MPs are ready to reaffirm their confidence in the leadership of President Zuma. It is a blatant abuse of uh, Section 102 of the Constitution because the Constitution envisages that such motions will be serious and must be based on facts and not fiction. And the Ahang as well as the DA motion are based on fiction. But that is a right that they enjoy in terms of the Constitution. And therefore, as the ANC, we are ready at all times. to. The SAPC will also appear before the Portfolio Committee on Communications. It is expected that the issue of the vote of no confidence passed against board member Hope Zinde and the decision to remove her as non-executive director with effect from 12 March will also come under the spotlight. That report by Lula Mamadia. It is 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Leader of South Africa's opposition party, IFP, Mangosuthu Butelezi, insists that he does not want to retire from politics, saying the busy political life is also taking its toll on him as his party marks its 40th year anniversary. But the... But he says the current state of his party is preventing him from doing so. Butelezi unveiled a series of events planned to celebrate the IFP's 40-year anniversary. He described as remarkable his party's survival over the past four decades despite numerous challenges. Zanele Butelezi reports. The IFP is one of the oldest political parties in South Africa's current political landscape. In recent years, it has been characterized, though, by internal power struggles, splinter parties and poor election performance. The party is using its resilience as the theme for its 40-year anniversary celebrations. Party leader Prince Mangosutu Butelezi says it's remarkable that his party has survived this long, despite countless obituaries written, attempts to destroy it and lack of funds. Butelezi says the IFP has managed to remain relevant. Considering how vilified I've been, how determined the ruling party has been to destroy us, and how much politics has become a game of money, it is certainly remarkable that the IFP has survived up to now. But we have, and in many ways we have thrived. Indeed, we remain a national party still, represented in parliament, in two legislatures, and in various municipalities. At all levels of governance, the IFP remains a, a voice of the people.
of goodwill. Our principles have retained relevance and we're still driving critical debates in South Africa. The 86-year-old veteran politician once again addressed the issue of his continued leadership. Butelezi has been at the helm of the party since its formation in 1975, and questions have been asked about his succession plan. Butelezi first spoke about retirement in 2004, but he says the party asked him to stay on to supervise the leadership transition. Mutelezi says the performance of his party in last year's general elections and the poor state of branches have delayed his retirement. But he does admit that the busy political life is taking its toll on him. We're supposed to meet at the beginning of the year. We've postponed this meeting a few times, which all that which was in preparation of me retiring. I don't see why people should think that I'm clinging. You know, because there's nothing for Mangosut Mutelezi. I mean... There is nothing I can be more than what I already have been in this country. There is nothing more I can be. I've made my contribution. It may be played down and so on. I may be vilified. But the truth is that I've served the people of this country. And my conscience is very clear. With the 2016 local government elections months away, Butelezi laments his party's lack of funding. But the question is, what is the party then relying on to regain lost ground? We've never changed any tune. We've stood where we've stood. We've been consistent and constant in what we believe. And we believe that there are honest people who, who actually, there may be few who have made us survive in spite of all the storms, but actually we, we appreciate the fact. A series of events have been planned to celebrate 40 years of the party's existence throughout the year, starting with this weekend's Thanksgiving service at Squanzimela where the IFP was launched in 1975. In August, the party will open the Prince Mangosu Tubutelezi Museum and Documentation Center in Ulundi. This facility will retain historical materials and information relating to Butelezi's political and public life, spanning about 70 decades. Zanile Butelezi, SABC News, Durban. The leader of South Africa's Economic Freedom Fighters Party, Julius Malema, will have to wait until the 1st of June to know whether his provisional sequestration order is made final or scrapped by the North Gauteng High Court. This follows the postponement of the case after South African Revenue Service filed affidavits stating that Malema has reneged from last year's agreement and promised to pay back the outstanding tax by the end of November. The SARS allegation was challenged by Malema's legal team before the presiding judge, Ferdi Prella, instructed the disputing parties to return to court on the 1st of June to make their case. Nemo Makwiting reports. The High Court decision to postpone the Malema tax and sequestration case has not changed his status as his provisional sequestration order remains. The Malema legal team says... It is determined not only to clear his name from the SARS dead books, but to prove that their client has complied and paid back money owed to SARS as per agreement between Malema and taxmen last year. Tumimukwena representing Malema says the SARS allegations that the EFF leader has failed to pay back the money are just delaying tactics employed by the taxmen. Mukwena says this matter was not supposed to have dragged on for so long. 
He says they will forward prove that Malema has satisfied his obligation by repaying the tax money owed to SARS as agreed when the case come before the court. We believe that the agreement should have been confirmed and there should not be a need for us to to come to court again. He has fully complied and it is surprising that SARS would have come up with an affidavit only on Friday evening to say that uh, he has not complied when the last payment was made in November. But we will uh, file our affidavits and uh, we will argue strongly on the 1st of June that this matter will uh, be dismissed and we are confident that it will be dismissed. Immediately after the court postponed the case, the Marimas team called on the newly appointed SARS Commissioner, Tom Muyani, to release the pending Skakani Commission report. The commission was established to enable retired SARS Commissioner Ivan Pillay to check whether SARS was acting outside its mandate. Mukwena says... The SARS action against Malema proves that the entity is not independent. There are allegations therein that uh, illegal means have been used uh, to pursue taxpayers, including Mr. Malema. If the new commissioner uh, seeks to further the values of this country of uh, transparency and openness, surely he should give us a Skakane report and let the country see whether indeed Mr. Malema has been pursued politically or this is just a tax matter. We have asked for the report. It's not forthcoming. Malema was not at court when the matter was postponed to the 1st of June for arguments. I am Nama Kuting in Pretoria. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. ISIL militants kidnapped 20 medical workers in the Libyan coastal city of Sirt. Activists from Burkina Faso, Senegal and an unspecified number of Congolese are still being held in police custody in the DRC following the release of a U.S. diplomat. And the condition of an American health care worker who contracted Ebola while volunteering in Sierra Leone treatment unit worsens. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And let's go back in time to today. In 2011, the UN Security Council approves a resolution to impose a no-fly zone over Libya and authorize all necessary measures to protect civilians from attacks by Muammar Gaddafi's forces. SAFM's Utsile Saku tells us more. France says that airstrikes against the government targets in Libya could begin within hours. A government spokesperson in Paris says the French would be the first to to participate in the raids following a UN Security Council resolution authorizing all necessary measures to protect civilians from attacks by Colonel Gaddafi's forces. Christian Fraser reports. There are unconfirmed reports in at least one newspaper. The raids will begin using four British tornadoes and four French Mirage jets. President Sarkozy was advocating surgical strikes some days ago on Colonel Gaddafi's radar systems and control bunkers, but the French are not ruling out targeted airstrikes on the ground forces. Their jets could fly from bases in Corsica and those on the Mediterranean coast, supported by the AWACS above that have been flying 24-hour sorties since Thursday last week. 
And that report by Christian Fraser, courtesy of the SABC Archives. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A German company implicated in bribery and corrupt allegations in the 1999 arms deal has refuted claims that it bribed middlemen to land contracts to supply the South African government with warships. A senior house attorney at Tissin Group Maritime Systems has appeared before the Arms Procurement Commission in Pretoria to testify about the allegations made against the company by the so-called arms deal critics. The commission is expected to hear more evidence from various companies as it's about to wrap up. Pumzilim Langeli reports. Tyson Krupp was part of the German frigate consortium which was awarded the tender to supply the Navy with frigates. Some critics and whistleblowers have come out with strong allegations against the company. Senior House attorney Klaus Versemok denied that the price of the acquisition of the frigates was inflated to pay commissions to the middlemen. He says a German probe into the allegations cleared all the implicated people, including South African politicians, of wrongdoing. These allegations have been... Uh, have been the subject or the object of the state prosecutor's office in Dusseldorf uh, starting in 2006. This was uh, obviously uh, supported by a lot of interest uh, here in this country. I can only say that no evidence supporting the allegations by South African sources that uh, any sort of corruptive practices had taken place in South Africa were ever found. The investigation, which started in 2006, was closed without any sanctions or any fines. Versimok also addressed allegations that the former chief of acquisition of the Defense Department, Chipisheik, also received millions of dollars from the company. There was one particular allegation that I would like to go into. Um, this was that we had paid uh, the chief of acquisition of the Department of Defense three million U.S. dollars to influence the procurement process. I can tell you this is not true. The GFC neither made or authorized such payments. This, again, was also uh, the subject of investigations by by the state prosecutor's office in Dusseldorf. No evidence of the veracity of this was found. And uh, we certainly, and this we looked into ourselves, no such payments were ever made or authorized. Varsimok concluded his testimony in just under an hour after all legal parties indicated they had no interest to cross-examine him. Two companies are expected to appear before the commission on Friday. Pumzilim Langini in Pretoria. Gender bias in textbooks is keeping girls from pursuing a career in science, maths and technology, according to a professor of sociology based in the United States. Ray Lessa Bloomberg wrote a study for the UN Cultural Agency UNESCO on how gender-based discrimination in education is driving women and girls away from subjects that they otherwise may excel in. She was recently at the UN headquarters in New York to attend the 59th session of the Commission on the Status of Women. Most of the world's textbooks are quite biased with underrepresentation of females, adult women, children, and female animals. The representation of women who, and, and girls who do get in to the textbooks is 
terribly stereotyped. It involves uh, mostly domestic activities and where the women and girls are shown in anything other than domestic activities, they tend to be the most stereotyped. The attributes that are given uh, to the men versus the women are also extremely common. The men are smart and brave and doing exciting, important things, and the women are quiet and passive and domestic and sometimes beautiful, sometimes silly. If we had a visitor from another galaxy, uh, that person would never, or creature would never be able to predict what human females do occupationally or beyond the household sphere because there is absolutely no relationship between a country's labor force participation rate or what its women are actually doing and what is depicted in the textbooks. That is a remarkably uniform phenomenon worldwide. How does this affect the young girls in education? What we think happens is that it helps. It's part of what is called the hidden curriculum. Let me go back. And it's an invisible obstacle because you're not seeing a girl, uh, you know, let's say being denied the right to go to school, but the textbooks that marginalize her are part of a pattern of less attention to girls that ultimately turns out to be very harmful. Uh, they become uh, less likely to go on in school. They uh, become less likely to see themselves doing any of those big, bold, and important things. And uh, this is particularly bad in terms of science and math, which is unfortunate for the world because uh, right now we are trying to climb the global value chain and many of these activities require, you know, background, science and math, uh, engineering. You're losing a good chunk of the capacity of, our, of the human species when uh, you deter girls from being all that they can be with their education, and in particular from going on to things that are more challenging like science and math. That's where I think it really manifests itself. How does the gender inequality in textbooks affect boys? The boys who get the most attention from teachers are the really smart, assertive ones or the ones who are naughty and take up the teacher's time. But there are a lot of boys who also are, are just not being given a lot of much of the teacher's time or attention. And we know that there is a worldwide problem with reading for boys in almost every country. And it's possible then that uh, it might be something that could be emphasized more. You know, look for instances of boys reading, of boys doing things that involve learning, of uh, giving them uh, some, uh, again, the detective work that might, you know, stimulate some conclusions among the boys that A, there's not enough of this, or B, I can do it. You were talking about implementing a gender sensitivity in textbooks. How is this going to happen? You give a little bit of training to the teachers so they know what to look for and what to tell the children. And then the teacher tells the students to basically look for instances in which the boys are shown in heroic uh, positions and poses uh, and attributes, and the girls are shown as very domestic, as very uh, you know passive, etc., etc., and let the students find out for themselves. And this often has the, the result with proper discussion afterwards of uh, sensitizing them to become aware of this, and it is a good opening for a very low-cost intervention on uh, reducing gender bias in education. That was Professor Ray Lesser Bloomberg of UNESCO speaking to UN Radio's Catherine Hasselberg. 
More Zimbabweans face hunger this year. Late rains, drought and floods have caused widespread crop failure, forcing the country to import grain. Shingai Nyoka reports. Surveying the devastation, farmers Tsitsi Paradza and her husband sank all their money into this maize crop, but their hopes for a great harvest have yielded nothing. They're going to go on a tiny rich bag. She says, last year we harvested one ton of maize, but that's all gone. We consumed it. This year, from what we can see, there's no food. These are just stalks. We're going to experience famine. Traditionally, the rural population need food aid just before the harvest, between January and March each year. This year's forecast was that an estimated 600,000 people would need assistance, down from 2.2 million last year. But that figure is now expected to be higher. Recent floods in the northwest, late rains and drought in the south have wiped out about 300,000 hectares, or close to a fifth of this year's expected maize crop. In some provinces, as much as 70% of the the crop has been lost. And if nothing comes out of this crop, next season will also be in jeopardy. Farmer Amai Bango says, I had to replant twice already and wasted 12 bags of fertilizer and 120 US dollars hiring cattle to plow the land. Will I get that money back? I think not. Although the rainy season is over, many here are hoping for a miracle. Across southern Africa, this year's crop outlook is bleak. Malawi has been severely affected by floods, and South Africa is also likely to have to import maize. I'm Shinganyoka in Harare, South Zimbabwe. It is 8.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Japan is still recovering from the tsunami that hit parts of that country in March 2011. The city of Sandai in particular, which is one of the mostly affected areas, is now constructing multiple defense measures. This includes a combination of coastal breakwaters, coastal prevention forests, evacuation roads and many other operations. On the sidelines of the Third World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction, currently underway in Sandai, journalists were taken on a tour to witness the scars left by the disaster. Selina Dubong reports. Members of the media were earlier invited to areas which are currently under reconstruction in Sendai City following the devastation caused by tsunami in the Tohoku region, which includes Fukushima, Sendai, Miyagi and Irate. It was reported in 2011 that 5,728 locations on residential land were damaged and more than 16,000 died in the entire region and about 117 died in Sendai alone. The wave, we were told, was about 8 meters above ground level and hit the inlands in less than an hour and demolished almost everything in the area. This is about 4 kilometers away from the coastal line. The road to recovery, according to the post-reconstruction bureau in the city, has not been an easy one. The area, which was mostly affected by the catastrophe in Sendai, just like many others in the region, has been declared inhabitable. Now, the challenge is still with resettling the residents who used to stay in the area. 
construction of roads, houses, business areas, electricity, gas and water supplies are also currently underway. The Bureau hopes that the constructions will be completed in about five years' time. Major lessons, however, have been learned according to the Bureau. A lot of planning now goes into how resilient buildings can be built, how early warning systems can be improved, and how risk reduction systems that are in place, such as evacuation operations, can be improved. The city of Japan now does not allow reconstruction in tsunami-hit areas that were hit in 2011 because they have been declared danger zones. Everyday training and prevention practice manuals are prepared in various business and residential areas. Examples of these practices include not to evacuate by car whenever there's a, there's a disaster, but to evacuate and go to the highest places around your area. And also, the Bureau creates awareness of the correct evacuation methods. Now, the people of Sendai say even if the experience of the tsunami fades away with time, they will not forget the experience and the assistance that they received with the preparation for disasters. And that report by Selina Dobong from Sendai in Japan. The Netherlands is supporting countries that are prone to disasters through what it is calling a holistic approach. That means taking into account the environment of a country and the particular risks it faces whilst working with local people to come up with the best way to prepare for catastrophes. The international community is discussing disaster preparedness in Sendai, Japan, at the third UN World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction. Nan Zheng spoke to Princess Margriette Francesca of the Netherlands about the message she's br- bringing to the conference. I'm very honored to be here and to bring our message from the Netherlands, what we are doing in countries that are prone to disasters where we work at the grassroots level uh, in disaster preparedness in every way, in a holistic approach, taking the environment into account, the resilience of the people. We involve the people in contingency planning, and we do also work with income-generating programs while an evacuation lasts, because sometimes, as you have seen here in Japan, that uh, an evacuation can last very long before you can go back to your own home. So that's about the work we do. What are the major disasters that the, the Netherlands suffer the most? Well, that was, we have to be thankful for that, in 53 and later in the early 90s. But in 53 was a real a tidal wave that hit part of the Netherlands and a lot of people died. And since then we have uh, what we call a delta plan. Dikes have been built and lots of waterworks for which we're pretty famous, I think. <laughs> and um, that's what keeps us safe now. But in, in the 90s, uh, the danger came from the riverside and we were not mentally really prepared because we were always looking at the sea, but we're not looking at the rivers. And then there were lots of floods in Europe and near floods and some floods in the Netherlands, but people had to evacuate. That was Princess Marguerite Francesca of the Netherlands speaking to you and radios in Nanjing. Our economics update up next with Tabitha Luhuku.
It's emerged that South Africa's power utility Eskim's top 10 officials were awarded massive bonuses last year. Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown disclosed these figures in reply to a written question from the Opposition Democratic Alliance in Parliament yesterday. This comes amid controversy over the recent announced inquiry into the power utility. Eskim's board chair Zola Tsuzi has reportedly placed himself in charge of the inquiry. This has led to calls by political parties for an independent inquiry. Tsuzi caused a shock last week by announcing the suspension of Eskim's CEO and three other top executives. Hundreds of mine workers are expected to stage a march at the Black Rock Mine near Kuruman in South Africa's northern Cape Province today. This in support of mine workers in the province who are facing possible retrenchments. Over 1,000 mine workers might lose their jobs at the end of the month. These mining companies in the province argue that they are not making enough profit. Reginald Vidboy reports. Mines include Asimang Black Rock Blue Chip Mining, Rockwell Diamonds and Dero Manganese near Katu. Mine workers are currently in talks with the National Union of Mine Workers on the premises of Black Rock Mine. It is expected that they will then gather outside to protest. The media is barred from entering the premises. Police are also on standby. Regional Bidboy, SABC News, Ortizial in the Northern Cape. President of the African Refiners Association, Pierre Ndier, says that the annual maintenance needed in an average-sized refinery in Africa's six is, is rather in Africa is six million dollars. He says that this excludes the purchasing of new specialized equipment, which can run into excess of a billion dollars. India is among a number of international oil experts who will be speaking at the association's 10th annual conference starting in Cape Town, South Africa today. The conference will discuss measures to invigorate investment in the African refining and distribution sectors. Ndia says significant investment is needed to overhaul outdated infrastructure in the oil industry to decrease reliance on foreign oil imports in Africa. The main part of infrastructure has been built in the 60s. Currently, we are away, away from what should be needed to cover the current demand of African population. I would like to take, for example, Central Africa or West Africa. West Africa, you know that big country which is importing a lot is Nigeria. Although there are four refineries, but because they are not performing very well, they are importing a lot, more than really 50% of the demand. BHP Billiton has put far less debt than expected into the $13 billion South 32 spin-off for positioning the company formed from its unloved assets to weather tough markets and spill pay a dividend. The world's biggest miner released documents detailing the performance of South 32's mines and refineries. The new mid-sized miner aims to focus on cutting costs and completing the projects in its aluminium, manganese, silver and coal businesses before weighing new investments. This despite a strong balance sheet and a market full of assets for sale. Indicators, the Sawa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The US dollar trades 12.42 South African Rand, 9.99 Botswana Pula, 7.32 in Zambia, 0.67 British Pound, 0.95 across the Euro, Gold, $11155, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1, $1,
platinum $1102 an ounce. Brand crude oil, $54.07 a barrel. That's an economic update. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. The South African national under-20 team cracked under pressure from the first two games and only recovered in the last match when it was playing against Zambia. Amajita coach, that's under-20 team, Tabo Sinong, says the team is used to winning things for South Africa and for them to have underachieved in the African Youth Championship has been a bitter pill to swallow. The coach says the team started to show signs of weaknesses from the onset when they were playing African powerhouses, Ghana and Mali in the African Youth Championships held in Senegal. We are still positive that uh, the core of this team will graduate to the Olympic team which is our under-23, and of course that is one of our objectives as uh, the under-20 team to make sure that uh, we fast-track the development of our players to the next level, which is our under-23 national team and Bafana Bafana. However, Sinong says he believes that the tournament was available as it has helped the technical team to support talent and the players who will join the under-23 national team. The performance of the team started to improve uh, in our last match, which was, of course, very late, unfortunately. We would have loved to start well, but it's just a combination of factors, maybe players taking time to adapt to the demands and situations, the players struggling to uh, settle, to understand the conditions and the dynamics of the tournament, but it's part of their learning process. And the Nigeria Football Federation, the NFF, has lodged a formal complaint to CAF concerning the manner of treatment meted out to Dolphins by their Confederations Cup opponents, Club African of Tunisia. Administrative sources in the Football Federation says the Nigerians' body petition toes exact line of Dolphins' statement on how the Tunisians refused to assist them even when they made it clear that they would honor the match. The former Nigerian champions released a statement blaming the Tunisian club and the Football Federation for scuttling their resolve to honor the first leg of the CAF Confederations Cup round of 32 match. And on to athletics, Ethiopian distance running great Kenanisa Begele has pulled out of next month's London Marathon because of an Achilles tendon injury. Begele, a multiple Olympic and world champion on the track, had been scheduled to make his debut in the London race on the 26th of April, but picked up the injury to his right Achilles while competing in the Dubai Marathon in January. On to tennis news, South Africa's top women's wheelchair tennis star, Khuta Zomonjane, and the country's number one men's player, Evans Maripa, have jetted off to the United States on Sunday to take part in the Pensacola and Cajun Opens. Holger Losh, director of Wheelchair Tennis South Africa, sheds more light on the U.S. trip. Our top players like Kotato and Evans are actually departing on Monday to the U.S. They've got two tournaments, uh, two big events there, Baton Rouge and uh, in Florida, uh, Pensacola. So we're hoping, uh, holding thumbs for them that they can do really well. 
That's Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Lesotho's new Prime Minister to be inaugurated today. Conflict erupts between legislators in Malawi and DRC security forces arrest at least 40 activists. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Elizabeth Ledicha, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is the late South African Minister of Public Service Administration song titled Tsukha Tsukha, Collins Shabane. Tzuka, tzuka.